there's a certain trouble in dealing with the subject of mythology with adults, because adults' minds tend to be closed by the time they have become adults, and the exercises in imagination and exploration, which mythology opens up, tend to frighten adults off. It's okay with children, because myth is a totally enjoyable and natural experience. They understand it, you don't have to explain it or anything, which is just as well, because actually it is unexplainable. If I try just to tentatively give a hint as to what it's about, I would suggest that myth in its purest form is truth. And what is truth, said Pilate, and turned away smiling? Because that doesn't take us very far, really. Uh, but I hope that by the time I've finished, you will see roughly what I mean. And indeed, I hope that you won't see anything exactly what I mean, because myth is in no way exact. You cannot say, this means that, that means that, and so on. Because once you start doing that, it leaves the realms of myth and becomes religion, or some form of dogma. So it's got to stay vague, and the actual meaning of it's got to stay inside you, for you personally to explore. I'd like to start off with just telling very shortly, which is a pity, because myths should be told with total drama, uh, but tell shortly two myths, so you know roughly what I'm talking about when I talk about myth. And the first one, just to make sure we don't stay with the classical world all the time, comes from Japan. And the hero of the myth is one Izanagi, I don't know if that is pronounced correctly, but it's good enough for us, whose girlfriend, Izanani, dies and is taken down into the underworld. And Izanagi wishes to find her and bring her back again. He fails, he gets down to the cave mouth, or rather gets back to the cave mouth again, there's our cave mouth, closely pursued by the hellhounds. And as he jumps through the door of the cave, the underworld closes forever and is never open to man again. Izanagi ritually cleans himself and from the sweat of his body spring up the gods. Amaterasu is the sun goddess. And another one, Suzanu, who is rather a naughty god, called the trickster. And Suzanu it plays games with Amaratsu. Amaratsu, shocked and frightened, flees into the cave and refuses to come out. And because she is the sun goddess, all is still dark. So how can they get her out? The trick that the other gods employ is to use the fertility goddess. And that she does her usual stuff in the mouth of the cave, uh, waggle waggle hips, lots of um, in and out tummies and um, roly-poly stuff and so on. And all the other gods are there shouting and clapping and hurrahing and so on. And by the sheer joviality of the scene, Amaratsu, out of sheer curiosity, 
pokes her little nose out of the mouth of the cave and whap, she's lassoed and hauled out and the sun is shining once again. That's a Japanese myth. And then we have the other one which I want to tell because it's there are certain similarities, there are other ones which are very close to it, but slight differences, uh, which is a beautiful one. It's also a spring myth, that is the explaining the, the seasons and the appearance of the sun or the disappearance of the sun. And this is Persephone, who is picking flowers in the beautiful valleys, and there across the sky wings Pluto in his great black chariot drawn by six black horses. And he looks down, he says, oh, just another girl but nearby who is floating, but Eros, who has been bribed by Aphrodite, who has suddenly taken a dislike to Pluto, because I think he spurned her sometime or other, and Eros shoots his arrow of love into Pluto, who has to fall in love with the first being he sees, and of course it is down there, Persephone. Down he goes in his chariot, picks Persephone up, screaming and struggling, and off across the skies he goes, across the sticks, and down into the cave of the underworld. Persephone has left her belt behind, floating on the river Styx, and the nymphs see it there. But Persephone's mother is Demeter, and Demeter is the goddess of the spring and fertility. And Demeter is angry and furious, and so she says, right, and she strikes the earth for swallowing up Persephone, which never produces anything again, and goes dead. Zeus, the great god, then says, please, we must have a living earth. Demeter says, right, get my Persephone back, Zeus sends off Hermes, who is another trickster god, down into the underworld. Hermes persuades Pluto to let Persephone go, but Persephone has eaten four pomegranate seeds. She has eaten the food of the elf king, and so she has to stay down there for four months out of every year. Up she comes, Demeter says, OK, and up come the crops again. Two myths, one from Europe, one from the Far Orient. And actually, if we follow those patterns, we find them stretching right the way around the whole world, north and south. Now, let's just return now to the individual. You, each one of you, if you were a shopkeeper and you sold china, say, in your shop, you would need to have a shop window in which were displayed the goods that you wish to sell. And if you were selling china, you wouldn't display sweets in your shop window. Peoples is the same thing. Jung, Carl Jung, came to the conclusion, though in fact he wasn't the originator of it, but he certainly developed the theme to the extent where it is a now very useful one. And he developed the theme that every person has to have a mask with which they present themselves to the outside world. If they had no mask, you take the mask away, there is nothing there. Of course there is, as the cell, but we can't see the cell. And if I look at Joe, there's somebody there with long brown hair, two eyes, nose, and so on, there's an end of it. I assume she has a cell, because human beings all appear to have those sort of inner spirits. But there's nothing else. If Joe wishes to be seen by me, she actually has to put on a mask. If she was a doctor, it would be one type of mask. If she was a teacher, it might be another type of mask. 
if she was in the army as a whack or something, it would be another type of mask. And by looking at that mask, I would be able to identify Joe as Joe, because I haven't got enough insight to see into her spirit. It is what Jung called the persona, naming it after actually the Greek tragic masks that were worn in those days. So that from way up in the theatre, your, your Greek citizens, your Athenian citizens, looking down, way, way down into the stage, could, by looking at the mask, say, ah, that is a comic character, or here comes the fierce character, here comes the tragic one, and so on. And we need that mask. We have to have a mask, because otherwise we are virtually nothing. The only people who don't have masks are small children. Very small children, but they start assuming these masks from fairly early on, let us say about eight or nine years old. And they have to, because otherwise we can't say to ourselves, so-and-so is such and such a character, therefore I will react to him in such and such a way. The trouble with a persona, though, which you adopt, which grows onto you, is does it actually reflect yourself? By the way, don't worry, I'm coming on to myth fairly soon again, but this is a necessary phase to go through, and I hope you'll see why I'm does the mask reflect what you are truly inside? Does the mask reflect that which you believe yourself to be? Does it reflect that which you wish yourself to be? Or does it reflect that which you truly are? And that is indeed a very pertinent question, or three very pertinent questions. If it's going to reflect what you truly are, then you need to know what you are truly. And so as you adopt that mask and show it, and you can change it accordingly, your situation, your job, and so on, perfectly natural thing to do, so people see you as that mask, and also, hopefully, something beyond it. Now, your persona, as I see it, helps me to relate to you. If I am not good at seeing personas, then I misread yours and we relate badly. And I am not awfully good at recognizing other people's masks if I don't know what my own persona is. And so you find that those people who do not really know themselves have considerable difficulty in knowing other people. Hence the importance of knowing yourself. There is one other danger. You can assume a mask which is totally false to yourself, but you think that this is the mask that the people around you want to see. And so you adopt it, and if you don't look out, you find yourself taken over by the mask where maybe you have a weak person who adopts the persona of his profession because it's easier that way and it appears to be a stronger mask than himself. So, we each of us build up a myth which we hope reflects our true self. With the individual, it is the persona. With the society, it's the myth. The same thing, except the myth works for the society. 
And whereas the persona reflects our inner selves, to some extent, the myth reflects the inner meanings of life. The language we have is quite incapable of describing, say, the colour blue to a blind man. We know it's there, but he hasn't the faintest idea what we are talking about. And so in order to get it over to him, we have to go sideways, so to speak, and approach him and blue from another angle. We have to use maybe the language of poetry. But there is certainly no concrete language we can use for describing blue to somebody who cannot see and has never seen blue. And so we have to describe it in some other form. And this is the same applies to truth. Truth cannot be described. It is, as the Professor Barnett once said, truth is a snowflake. It's there. As soon as you grab it, it's gone. And so in order to describe our snowflake, we use myth, as we would use poetry to describe blue, maybe, to the blind man. Every story, actually, when you look at it, every story is a myth in one form or another. One of my most favourite ones is Star Trek, which, um, certainly in the old days, when it was first conceived, was the most wonderful myth process, actually. Very genuine. Uh, most people couldn't recognise it or didn't recognise it. But it was there. There was no doubt about it. Practically every week there was some aspect of the myth, the, the, the archetypal, the basic myth process was shown on the screens. Star Wars is another one, which is interesting. It seems now that we are having to use space to build up our strongest myth stories because our ordinary lives are so concrete and material that it is difficult to get the right paint from them. Adam and Eve, a fine myth. Hiawatha, Song of the Rhine, Rhine Maidens, the Nibelung, Tolkien, so on. All those stories, and I'll mention one or two more in a little bit more detail later on. But I would like to now return to the persona, the incident of the person adopting the false persona and the persona taking over the person. Precisely the same thing happens with the myth. As soon as you start to concrete that myth, materialize it, and make it into something you grasp, that's when the danger starts. It has got to stay intangible. If you can leave your myth as a spiritual conception, then you can take the truth from it as you need it. But once you start materializing it, you're in trouble. Now, I think it would be relevant now to go through the different, what you call the archetypes, uh, that's the different salient features of mythical stories as they appear to be common throughout the world. And you've already seen the two myths I told you which had a cave in them. One was the cave of the underworld from which the sun eventually comes back again. Uh, the other one was Amaratsu's cave. And 
there are many, many, many of these archetypes. Jung actually spent many years traveling the world, exploring myths, and finding out the common factors that were in them. And to his surprise, he found these factors in every corner of the world, the same common factors, which is a rather fascinating thought. Where did they get come from? How did they spread like that? Or were they natural? Did they simply spring straight out of the society, or did they spread with that society as it spread across the earth? How come that the South American Indians uh, have certain expressions of the sun or the corn or fertility or whatever that the Greeks have, or the Vikings or the Japanese? How did it spread? Well, we can't really answer that one, except that Jung found that many of them are common to our dreams. And I think I'll leave that thought there, because that takes us into another totally different area. But there is a very close connection between myth and dream, particularly in the archetypes. Well, here are the archetypes. Certainly, as I say, not only a few of them, about eight or so, though there are many, many more. The tower, the cave, both the same. Except, I suppose, if you are living in um, a particular type of country, it's easier to conceive a tower rather than a cave for certain purposes. In either case, it contains a certain menace. We've seen how Amaratsu hid in the cave and the sun hid. Pluto dragged down, drags Persephone down, through the cave, down to his underworld. Roland searching for his daughter, who goes widdershams round the village church, against the sun, anti-clockwise round the church. And Roland, his sister, goes anti-clockwise round the church and disappears. What has happened? She's been abducted by the elf king, who then takes her off to his dark tower. And child Roland then eventually, after various adventures, finds her. What happens when he finds her? He's been told, luckily, by some old wizard, that he must not take any food whilst he's in the dark tower of the elf king. Because if he does, he will stay there forever. Which is precisely the threat which Persephone faced. She only took four of the pomegranate seeds. But uh, if she'd taken a whole lot, she would never have left the underworld. So food is another archetype in certain situations, and that crops up surprisingly <coughs> often. Take the food of the elf king, or the food uh, of, of the king of the underworld, or the elf queen, or whatever, and you've had it. I wonder what that means. Well, I'm not going to tell you, because I think that it is something really that you have to find out for yourself, because whatever I told you wouldn't necessarily be agreeable to you, and you would probably express it to yourself far better way. Eurydice goes down into the cave of the underworld. Orpheus pursues her. She's killed by the snake. He manages to persuade Pluto to let Eurydice go, if you remember, and, but he mustn't look back. Well, he does look back, and she fades back into the underworld, which is then closed forever. Robin Hood, this one's always intriguing, Robin Hood dies in the tower. And, and he is up in the castle, he's dying, and he is going to stay there forever? 
but what does he do? Out comes his trusty bow and arrow, and through the arrow slit of the castle wall, with his last dying strength, pow, goes his arrow, and that's where he's to be buried, where it falls. So actually, he is freed from the dark tower. Gandalf, Tolkien's story, I don't know if anybody's read Lord of the Rings, but Gandalf gets caught by Sauron, and is, is kept captive in Sauron's dark tower. It is a very favourite archetype for dreams. I wouldn't be at all surprised if some of you haven't had some dream of towers sometime or a tower. I certainly have, and it was a vivid one. I can remember it absolutely almost brick by brick. And maybe a cave, though the tower is more common. John, you've mentioned the elves throughout this yes. as being evil. Um, it depends how you treat them. I'll come back to the elves in a moment. The Scots, uh, the Gaels call them the Shia, which I think is a much more um, uh, meaningful and mysterious name, actually. But they're the same people. And if you treat them proper, they treat you... Well, not even proper. You have to sort of be a bit, you know, kowtow, and they'll be okay. And you've got to give them their food at the right time, sort of thing. But cross their path and power you are then their slave. The next uh, archetype is the hero, which is probably the most common archetype of all. There's probably, say, about ten properties which your hero may have. Out of those ten, every hero will have probably six of them, something like that. You won't necessarily have all of them, but there's enough of them there to identify him as a hero. Let's have a look at some of our heroes. We can look at Perseus, a magical birth. Zeus was his father. Dany, his mother, locked in the tower by her father. But Zeus comes in a shower of gold. He has, he has a magical assistant. In this case, in fact, it was Athene, if I remember rightly. One of the goddesses was on his side. She supplies him with the um, reflective shield with which he fought Medusa. He has magical powers himself. Oh yes, he is of royalty, of the line of David born. His father is a king. And I think that applies in almost every case, actually. The hero is, is of royalty born, is an aristocrat, so to speak. Let's look. Oh yes, he does, he's on a quest. That's right, he, he, he does a quest. He goes from one danger, he is sent on one danger, from one danger to another, seeking, seeking, seeking. And the story of Perseus doesn't, the actual the end of it all, and in fact I don't know which is the last story, is, is almost incidental. What matters is what happened in his journey, not what happened at the end of it. And the other thing that the hero should have too is a girlfriend. Without his girlfriend, he is only half a hero. He is unwhole, unholy. He becomes holy once he has got his other half with him, the female half. And in Perseus's case, of course, it was Andromeda, I think it was, he rescued from the rocks uh, when the Kraken comes to chew her up and she becomes his bride. Theseus is a better one from that point of view. There's another hero, royal, uh, uncertain birth, um, and his girlfriend, Ariadne, 
helps him into the maze of the Minotaur. The maze. There's another archetype, the maze. The, question, the maze is a question itself, and in the centre of it is this animal driving force, the bull. Theseus could not defeat that bull on his own. He has to have his female half to do it. Ariadne. He is not whole unless he's got Ariadne there. And if he'd gone in on his own, then the bull would have chewed him up. He cannot control his uh, driving animal forces, so to speak. But with Ariadne there to help him and so on, it's rather sad, actually, because he, he throws Ariadne out afterwards and goes off on other adventures, but that, in a way, is incidental. Um, Hiawatha, lovely hero, I think one of my favourites. Minnehaha is out of half-royal birth. He was a chieftain's son, Iroquois tribe. He was actually a real-life person, as all these people probably were, actually, and they have the myth process slowly pinned on through the ages. Their wolf, the Saxon one, they all die violently. A very interesting recent one is Percy Toplis. You see um, the monocle of Moutonnerre. Now there we have, once again, our ability, the sleazy, no-good, two-bit deserter on the run, and have nothing about him at all. But what happens? He has a monocle. Straight away that puts him in the aristocratic classes, okay? And he is portrayed, helping the underdog, soldier and so on, he has his true trusty girlfriend and sadly uh, he's, he's killed violently and it stops there because we know where Percy's grave is and the myth stops because almost a total necessity for your hero is that he should lie in an unmarked grave and nobody knows where he lies and of course I suppose the hero that answers that most perfectly. Two of them, one is King Arthur and the other is Jesus Christ. Jesus, born of the line of David, in spite of the church he does have his girlfriend Mary Magdalene, who is probably his truest disciple. Line of David, what happened to his body, um, and so on. King Arthur, King Arthur waits still in his hollow caves and the hollow hills with his trusty band of knights when he died, carried across the water, as so many of them were, like Baggins and Tolkien, he went across the water at the end of his life. And Bilbo Baggins, they go across the water and then they disappear. But he's waiting there to come back, just like Jesus is waiting to come back. And uh, I'm not sure actually that in Tolkien's thing, Bilbo Baggins isn't going to come back. He hasn't been put under. And uh, he could if Tolkien had continue to live, who knows, have come back again. So there's our hero. The hero is frequently a reborn personality. He is reborn time and time again, mythically. And we come to Osiris, Adonis, and Tammuz, all of which are prototypes of Jesus, in fact. All rebirth, reincarnation stories. Drake, Drake's drum, He's going to come back again in Hiawatha. Let us have a look, quick look now at the quest of the heroes, because some of them are quite interesting. I, in fact, the ones I got here, I wish I'd chosen some more way out ones. Um, I got Theseus, but we've talked about him. Jason is one on a quest. Your hero is on a quest. Who is this hero? He is the man 
human archetype, the basic man that we picture as being maybe the persona of man. The fact that he is a male is really incidental. But as long as he's got the female half and his whole culture is semi-half-female, then he is whole. Ahab's an interesting one. Ahab's quest for the white whale in Melville's Moby Dick. Apart from being a thundering good story, it is totally mystical. And if you read that again and again and again, there's all sorts of hidden snowflakes in there, waiting to be grabbed and then to be lost again. And Frodo and Sam from Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, of course, another quest. Though that one's always puzzled me because Frodo never actually had the female other half, unless you count Eowyn, who appears halfway through, and then really disappears again. And in this case, Frodo had Sam with him, who is the trusty, trusty, earthy creature who is Frodo's other half to keep his feet on the ground. You have the same, actually, in War and Peace, Tolstoy's War and Peace, Platoff who suddenly comes out halfway through the book. There is the person that Tolstoy's hero is looking for. When they both of them are facing death, and he meets Platoff, this peasant who has got earth truth uh, and gives him strength for the rest of the book, in fact. Fascinating creation. Indian societies have got Krishna and Radha, and Balda has his female side, Balda, who is the Viking sun god and a complete personality in himself. And it's interesting in some of the Greek statuary that you see, for instance, uh, Adonis. And Jung, actually, Jung was the first one to notice this. There is in the uh, National Museum in Athens, which I've seen, and I didn't realize at the time, I've been kicking myself ever since. You look at this gorgeous head of a god, uh, which is supposed to be Adonis, and, in fact, if you do actually look at it, perceive it instead of just with the eye, but through the eye, you suddenly realize that one half of the face is different from the other half. And so the face is the whole God. One half is a sort of male face, and the other half is the female face. And, um, and all the inscriptions underneath are written in Greek, and I just didn't, whether they actually said it to the museum, I don't know, but I've totally missed that one. Whether I'll ever get back and see him again, I don't know, but it's fascinating. So there you have your whole hero, your whole god, actually conceived in one form by putting a female half onto the male half there. Water is another archetype, very common one. I mentioned the Styx River. Um, the Viking funerals brings me to St. Christopher. Let me go back a bit. Only about three months ago, I was sitting in the staff room at the school where I work, and one of the staff uh, suddenly started recounting how her friend, a very good friend of her friend, had been shopping in Safeways and had returned to her car to find an old lady sitting in the back seat. And the old lady said how faint she was feeling and could she sit there for a moment. And this friend of the friend said, yes, certainly. Where did she live? Could she take her back to her home? Oh, that would be so kind of you. Thank you so much. Right, if you just wait a moment and I'll go back and get the rest of my shopping. Off she goes to get the rest of her shopping. Comes back to the car 
And what does she find on the back seat but a wig and a hatchet on the back seat? Now, my colleague swore that her friend's friend saw this. That same story has been told in detail for the last 100, 200, 300 years, in almost precise detail. It is quite extraordinary. The usual form is on the motorway. You give the old lady a lift, and then in the mirror as you're driving along, you suddenly see this hairy hand coming over your shoulder. You brake violently, you swerve into the side of the motorway, and the little old lady takes off down the motorway, leaving a long double-edged knife and a wig and gloves and so on in the back seat. Where does that come from? Because also, even going back further, the Scots had the shear, the elf folk. Now, if you give the shear part of your crops each year, they will leave you alone. They might even bother to help you. But if you don't, then they can be very nasty people indeed. They take all forms and they spirit you away to where the elf queen is waiting if you're a man or the elf king is waiting if you're a woman. Heaven knows what happens to you there. And so you are riding on your horse back to your bothy one night when suddenly you see on the edge of the road an old woman bowed down with her shopping from the market and begging for a lift. If you're a canny Scotsman, you dig the spurs into your horse and drive hell for leather back to your bothy. If you're foolish enough and charitable enough, you stop and give this old lady a lift. If you do, you are never seen again. Because she then digs her heels into the horse and off you go to the elf king's tower or whatever. It's the same story. And that is an old, probably Celtic story. St. Christopher, not an old lady this time. It may have been an old lady once. There are certainly myths using old ladies. I have a feeling of Hercules. Somebody had to help an old lady or somebody. It's one of the Arthurian knights now. I think it was the Green Knight has to take an old lady across the river. And she, he can't get her off his back once he's got her on. And there's a terrible struggle, and he does actually manage, I think, in the end. Uh, St. Christopher has the child. Well, that may have been altered. Who knows? It's the same thing. And then the child in this case turns out to be the Christ child. What is the old lady? What is the Christ child? Well, is it the self? Jung says this essentially is the burden of your own self which you are carrying through the quest of life. And if you examine all these stories, you know there's a certain amount of sense in that. It, it could be so, something like... It means something, otherwise it wouldn't be there. Nothing is there unless it means something. So, if you don't know what it means, well, maybe one has to explore it and find out. So, there's our Shia and the Elf folk again. Um, it's a lovely story, actually. It's fascinating. It goes on for a long time. All sorts of things happen. Now, this other one, the next archetype, is a fascinating one, and this is the trickster god, the, sh the shape-changer. Loki is the Viking trickster. One moment he is the pet of the gods. Next moment he is doing some evil deed, being extremely unpleasant, causing Baldur's death by persuading his blind brother to fire... Uh, this, the mistletoe arrow, well, there's a lovely story on it, I won't go into it all now, but, uh, and then the gods spend the next sort of few millennia chasing Loki, and eventually he comes back again. Um, and he's always changing shape, often into old ladies, 
old crowns. Suzanu, Amaretsu, the chap who, who sent Amaretsu back to her cave, he's a trickster god. One moment he's doing good, next moment he's causing trouble. Hermes was one. The Indians use animals. The raven, the coyote are their trickster gods. Shape-changing. The Africans, Anansi, the spider. Shape-changing, always there, ready to cause trouble. The trickster. Very interesting god. And frequently the trickster actually becomes the god. Right, let me just conclude that myth then is a tool and it seems to me to serve two purposes. It keeps the imagination going, keeps it open, which is what matters, and it provides us with meaning. It must be kept implicit, vague. Once it becomes explicit, it becomes positively dangerous. It becomes a dogma, and certainly not much use, except to weak people. If you take it literally, then relationships suffer. And mankind who takes his myths literally becomes brittle. And he becomes easily swayed by his outside, by the material outside. But he's lost touch. The myth is the contact between man's spirit and his outside world. It is the sort of lifeline between the two. Both lives are essential. There's got to be a contact between the two. I'd like to finish off, if I may, just by quoting a few lines from Tolkien's Mythopia. Well, a rather wonderful poem, but I won't do it all of it. Just a few lines at the end. And he finishes off saying, Though all the crannies of the world we filled with elves and goblins, though we dared to build gods and their houses out of dark and light, and sowed the seed of dragons, t'was our right, used or misused, that right has not decayed, we make still by the laws in which we are made.